We're continuing on in our series today on the Lord's Prayer, but it's obvious to all of us here that we're also headed toward this table before us. And so I want us to begin today with a context of this table, and uh, that is what we, we read in the Scripture uh, concerning the words of institution of the Lord's Supper. This is from, from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We have that, that stern warning, a gracious invitation, but a warning as well about not taking in an unworthy manner. Now the reality is that none of us are worthy in and of ourselves. Impossible. If it, if it was up to our own worthiness, none of us would take today. And so it's based on the worthiness of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what are things that would cause us to not partake? Well, as I read the Scripture today, I want you to continue to ask that question. Is there anything in the Scripture that I am reading that would tell us that that is something that would hinder you in your relationship with the Lord? And so we read in our Scripture beginning with verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespass. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, now we would ask that you would help us to focus. Your word has called us pertaining to this table before us. It has called us to examine ourselves. And we're not even capable of that apart from your Holy Spirit. And so, will you illumine our hearts and minds Will you help us to, to see ourselves, really see ourselves, not the way we, we want to be, but the way we are before you. But not that that would hinder our relationship with you, but that it would grow it. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Well, I'm going to answer the question right up front in case you didn't catch it. If you've not forgiven others, you should not take communion today. Now, don't think for a moment it's because I don't want everyone in this room to take communion if they ought to. But think of it this way instead. I don't want anyone in this room to eat and drink condemnation on themselves. And so He's given us this warning. And so you either need to forgive them today and when I say them, you probably have somebody in your mind. Maybe not. Maybe not doesn't come to your mind instantly. But maybe it does. So you either need to forgive them today or don't take so that you don't eat and drink judgment on yourself. Now, I know that puts some of you in a dilemma today. You might have been greatly hurt by a spouse, by a parent, by a child, by a friend, or someone you thought was a friend, by a co-worker, maybe by somebody you don't even know. And some of you, if, if somehow I could know who that, what that name of that person is, if I brought that up, some of you might say, oh, I've, I've forgiven them. But in your heart of hearts, you know that there's something else there, that you haven't completely forgiven them because somehow... At night when you can't sleep and you can't stop your mind from going, 
sometimes you replay what happened to you. And sometimes you still feel that hurt. And perhaps it's because there's more forgiveness work for you to do. If that's the case, you are in bondage to that person. And I've been praying this week that many of you where that is the case would experience a freedom because of the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. Freedom that maybe you didn't even realize that you still had some bondage that you need to deal with. For that to happen, we've got to do several things. We need to remember our dilemma, and then we need to make sure that we understand the work of Christ. And finally, we've got to believe the gospel. You might be saying, well, what's that have to do with our forgiving others? Well, I, I, I trust by the end of the message you will see why all of those are necessary for us to forgive. First of all, we must remember our hopeless dilemma. Over in Matthew 18, and we're not going to take the time to read uh, this whole parable, but uh, this is from Jesus, and it's, uh, he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, if you, uh, your Bible is anything like mine, there's a, a, a footnote there. They've done, lots of people have done studies about how much this is. Uh, the, the bottom line is it's the largest debt conceivable. Um, some have estimated it in, in dollars. Um, a talent they say, was a monetary unit worth about 20 years' wages for a laborer. 20 years of wages. So if you have 10,000 talents, that would be 200,000 years' worth of wages. Some, by <clears throat> using the uh, gold as the standard, have come to figure out uh, maybe 3600000000 dollars dollars. We're talking national debt here. You know, this is, this is huge. This is beyond comprehension. And that's precisely the point. He used a term where they would say, well, this, this person has, has no, no hope of ever repaying that. Now, you might say, well, how, how could that be compared to my sin? You know, I'm no, I'm no Adolf Hitler. I'm no Osama bin Laden. What would Jesus say to that? I think in uh, his word, 
in James 2, it says, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So our tendency at self-justification can be absolutely deadly. Suppose you uh, write a bad check. Um, parents, will you explain to your children what checks used to be? Those things that we used to use. But uh, you write a check and uh, you bounce it. You know, it's on your record five years, I'm told. Okay. Now, you might say, well, uh, okay, I'll just fix that. I'll put enough money in. Does that fix it? No. Well, how, many, how many good checks does it take to fix that one? Well, you would say, well, it doesn't really work that way. It's not about making up for the bad one with good ones. Or suppose you get caught stealing $1,000 from work. And they, you know, they catch you and they say, okay, that's it. And you say, oh, wait a minute, I'll pay you back and let's just call it even. Here's your $1,000. Does it work that way? Well, of course not. You can't pay back and expect it, everything to be even. Or, you know, you really lose it and you punch somebody in the nose. How many gift certificates to San Jose Mexican restaurant do you think it would take to make up for that? So, so you're all saying, okay, it, it doesn't work that way. But, but that's our tendency is to, to look at balancing things out and to think when we look at our own sin, to think, but, you know, I've, 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 I'm not as bad as that person or that person. Jack Miller used to say, cheer up, you're worse than you think. You're more sinful and wicked than you ever dared believe. I'm going to give you the rest of that statement later. But Jesus, I think, would agree with that. The bottom line is that we are in a position of debt that we can never pay back. It's, it's a thousand maxed out credit cards with 28% interest and you're making $20,000 a year. We've got to say, that's a hopeless dilemma. And that's where we've got to start. Now, the good thing is, and I never get tired of this, is that that's not where it ends with us in that hopeless dilemma. Again, what's that have to do with forgiving others? You need to stay with me because the second step toward getting out of uh, that spiritual dilemma of unforgiveness is to understand the infinite work of Christ. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So that's the infinite part. Unlike the Old Testament sacrifices that were over and over and over again, uh, the contrast here is when it came to Jesus' sacrifice, it was once 
for all, and it was enough because he didn't deserve to die for his sins because he had no sin. And so, he died in the place of his people. That same verse. And by the way, we recently went over all of these in depth, so we're not going to go into them uh, as deeply as they deserve, uh, these several doctrines. But in that same verse, we see the substitutionary atonement. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The righteous for the unrighteous. In a few minutes, at the table, we are going to read from Isaiah 53. I want you, especially today, to listen and to hear the substitutionary atonement. Him for us. Ours for His. And again and again, we will see that doctrine coming out. The easiest way to describe the substitutionary atonement is that Jesus lived the life that we needed to live and he died the death that we should have died. That's the substitutionary atonement. And then we need to, to grasp the doctrine of justification. Again, we hit this in some depth recently. Therefore, Romans 5, 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? Now that, that term justification may sound theological. But let me apply it to us. Do you remember when we see in, recorded in the gospel what the Father said at Jesus' baptism? He said this, This is my Son whom I love and in whom I'm well pleased. Now we probably don't have any trouble thinking about the Father saying that about the Son. Of course, he would say, this is my son whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. But when we're in Christ, because of the substitutionary atonement, if you're trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life, he looks upon you and says, you are my child whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. Why? Because the life of Christ dwells within us. It's Christ in us. And so that's how the Father sees us. So we've talked about substitutionary atonement, justification. The third step here toward forgiveness is to believe the gospel. What? 
Some of you are thinking, well, I'm already a Christian. He must be talking to those that aren't Christians yet. Well, I am talking to those who have not yet made a profession of faith, but I'm talking to all of us who have made professions of faith. We have got to believe the gospel every single day, and we have got to preach it to ourselves every single day, because if not, we will fall back into the default of wanting to work our way to God. so in believing the gospel it's not about I've done more good than bad it's about what Jesus did and so we've got to receive his kindness Romans 2 verse 4 do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Remember our statement <coughs> by Jack Miller, cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. You're more sinful and wicked than you ever dared believe. Well, the last part of the statement that he never, he never stopped there. He'd say that to shock people up front. Cheer up, you're worse than you think, you know. But the last part of the statement is, and you are far more loved and accepted than you ever dared to believe. So yeah, you're worse than you think, but you're more loved and accepted than you can even imagine. So I don't want to guilt anyone into the kingdom. I don't want to guilt anyone into repentance. I don't want to guilt anyone into forgiving somebody else. Paul says it's his kindness that leads you towards repentance. So when we understand the kindness of the Father to pay for our sin on the cross, that's what will break us and move us toward the ability to forgive. And then we've got to experience godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I think maybe the easiest way to illustrate um, worldly grief and that godly grief that he's talking about is Judas and Peter. Judas realized what he had done when he betrayed Jesus. And so what's he do? He tried to give the money back. When he couldn't do that, he threw it away and he ended up committing suicide. That's worldly sorrow. And it leads away from God and it leads to despair. Peter also abandoned and denied Jesus. He experienced sorrow, but he ran instead to the empty tomb. He instead declared his love for Jesus and he ministered the rest of his life for Jesus out of gratitude 
for Jesus' kindness toward him. He was broken in repentance, but he was restored and faithful to Jesus, even when it eventually cost him his life. And then the third thing we need to do to believe the gospel is to ask forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It sounds so obvious. But we have to ask the one that we offended. Now, who is that? Well, here's where it starts. Psalm 51 for David, who had sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and uh, the, the people of Israel. But in Psalm 51, verse 4, he says, against you, speaking to God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You punch somebody in the nose. You don't tell everybody else you're sorry. You go to that person Ultimately, every sin is against the Father. So our final problem, though, because I, I read this to you earlier, Matthew 6, 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So does that mean that our act of forgiving others precedes God's act of forgiving us. That's what it sounds like. Or that we will only be forgiven in the measure and manner that we ourselves forgive. Many preach it that way. I don't believe it can mean that. We can only learn to forgive because we ourselves are forgiven first. We know that nothing that we ever do is perfect enough to be an adequate standard for what God does. And so if ultimately we were only forgiven to the same degree, then no one would go to heaven. So the answer goes back to that parable that we began with. When Jesus gave that parable about, he, he started with the, the great dilemma that uh, the debt that there's no way that could be paid. And he has the one who was owed that debt forgiving that person for that debt that he could never repay, the 10,000 talents. But then the parable goes on. It goes on, and, and that one who was then forgiven is owed one day's wages by someone else. And he demands payment. Begins to choke the person when he doesn't pay. That's the second part. And that's the unmerciful servant. 
So what's my response in this? Will you, will I, be that unmerciful servant who has been forgiven that which could never be repaid but is unwilling to forgive someone else when they've sinned against us. We are owed the hundred denarii, the one day's wages, and we've been forgiven 200,000 years worth of wages. Now, I would never for a moment minimize the hurt that some of you have been dealt in this life. What Jesus is saying is that whatever that hurt is from another, compared to what you have been forgiven for and the cost of that forgiveness, that because of His grace, it is like that which was owed to the unmerciful servant. So that's the question we're left with. Will we be the, the thankful servant who forgives because we've been forgiven or instead be the unmerciful servant? So I want to change the question, change the challenge about forgiving others. I think the question has to be, since I've been forgiven, how can I not forgive? And when we answer that, a freedom will come upon you when you forgive, not because you have the capacity in your heart, but because Christ in you is able to forgive others. This table is not for unmerciful servants unless the unmerciful servant is repentant and willing to forgive because he's been forgiven. Listen to the Apostle Paul, one who had persecuted the church and Christ and been forgiven. He said, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Let's bow together. So, Lord, in these quiet moments before these elements are passed, will you give us hearts that desire and are willing to forgive because we know we have been forgiven? We can't do that on our own. We do not have the strength, we do not have the grace, but Christ in us does. And so we would plead for this, not because we deserve it, but because 
He is your beloved Son in whom you're well pleased. And so we ask this in His name. Amen.